Good morning, Salem Heights. It's so good to be with you this morning, and hopefully you've had a chance to gather with some family or friends to watch this morning's service. If you're a guest this morning, we are so glad that you made time to join us as we worship the Lord and hear from His Word. And We'd love to invite you to check out our website where you can learn more about our church. You can also reach out to us if you have prayer requests or want to know more about the church. We would love to get to meet you and answer any questions you may have. You know, it's been several weeks that we've been meeting online, but each week we are delivering God's Word to you. And because of that, I believe this morning God could speak to you in a way that could change your life forever. So hopefully you've come anticipating that kind of experience. And now let's direct our hearts to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, good morning, Salem Heights friends and guests. We welcome you here today. We're glad that you've joined us. Here in a minute, we're gonna hear from God's word, but we're gonna worship first. And so we're inviting you to have your families come on in the room, uh, kids and everything to come in and worship with you. Any families that you might have over to do the same, obviously, of course. Uh, I wanted to encourage you with a, a, a word from the Lord here this morning. This is out of Nahum. It says, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him. And that implies, of course, that he's watching us and he sees us and he knows what we're dealing with. And so I want that to be an encouragement to you today that no matter what's going on in life, God sees you. And so we're going to sing this song that talks about it and proclaims his goodness to us. It goes like this. separate your steadfast love who can escape your faithfulness an endless sea and so full of grace and mercy and we see God is so God is so good, and God is so good, and He's so good to me. And haunted by the past no more, and haunted by the past no more my innocence has been restored and forgiveness flows from your veins and your kindness shown in all your ways we see God is so Wow. 
God, you are good. Tell him. And God, and you are good. And God, you are good. And God, you're so good. And you're so
Father, that is true. As believers, we ought to be proclaiming that, that we would live for you because we recognize we have been purchased with a price. We're so thankful for your son Jesus and what he has done for us on the cross. We know that we had nothing, but now we have everything. We have an inheritance that is beyond description, beyond compare. You call us sons and daughters. You call us co-heirs with your son. It's incredible. That is what we have to look forward to. So I pray that you'd help us to keep our eyes fixed on you during these days because that is what will sail us through. God, I would pray that you would help us to minister to the people around us. We know that you've called us to be your ambassadors and what an opportunity we have right now when there are those that are looking for hope, stability, and we know that you bring that. So I pray that you would help us to have our eyes open, ready to share who you are and give an account for what you've done in us to other people. So I pray that you'd help us to do that. We look forward to looking into your word now. Pray that we are encouraged to live the rest of this week the way that you'd want us to. Pray that you'd help us now to hear from you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, good morning, Salem Heights. This morning, I'm flying solo without Pete, uh, and we're starting a brand new series. We're calling The Faithful Prayers of Fractured Lives. We're going to be taking a few weeks to actually investigate some of the great men and women in Scripture and episodes from their lives where they were in despair or overwhelmed, and not just what God did in their life, but the prayer that led to the great thing that happened in their life. And what we are praying for in the course of this study is that we will be inspired to pray, that as we look at many hard things that are going on around our nation, and as we're watching even within our own church, people struggling with their current uh, situation, uh, that they will be inspired to pray, that we will be inspired to pray, and to believe that that is one of the greatest things that we can do in this season. I want to just highlight at the very beginning um, of this series that we are a nation that's in trouble. This morning we're going to be looking at the book of Lamentations. And I want to apologize up front. Uh, we're, we're going to be doing just a little bit of a deep dive. And the reason for that is I believe that our nation is hurting at a level that we haven't seen, at least in my season in ministry. I want to just highlight a few of the newspaper headlines uh, that were current with when we were taping this uh, session right now. Michelle Goldberg from New York Times on June 23rd, began to graph the coronavirus curve in Britain, Canada, Germany, and Italy, and they look like mountains with steep climbs, she says, but in the United States, it climbs straight up and plateaus. She said, uh, Politico reported Monday, Italy's coronavirus catastrophe once looked like America's worst case scenario. But today, it is said that America's new per capita cases remain on par with Italy's worst day, and it shows signs of rising further. The disease has not stopped. As a result of recent situations that are happening in our United States, 74% of Americans have said that they believe the country is headed on the whole in a wrong direction. Vanessa Barford of BBC News reporting out of England Asked this question, why are Americans so angry? 
She began to look at our politics, highlighted that uh, we have become more polarized in these recent years, and it shows no sign of stopping. Democrats and Republicans, she said, have become more ideologically polarized than ever. The typical median Republican is now more conservative in his or her core social, economic, and political views than 94% of Democrats, compared with 70% just a short while ago. The median Democrat, meanwhile, is more liberal than 92% of Republicans, up from 64%. The study found that the share of Americans with highly negative views of the opposing party has doubled, and that the animosity is so deep that many would be unhappy if a close relative married somebody of a different political persuasion. Virus is on the rise, unhappiness is on the rise, our politics are a mess. But think about those that are searching for social justice. I'll just give you one case, one article that came out this morning as I was preparing this message. There was a noose found in Bubba Wallace's garage, a driver for NASCAR, the only man of color that was driving for NASCAR who now uh, had, had successfully been able to lobby NASCAR to remove some offensive flags from their uh, cons consistent availability, from their scenery that was in most of the different places they went to in the South. He was a champion, he is a champion. Comes back to his garage and the next morning he finds a noose in his garage. It was important, it says, on uh, Monday, the 15th, FBI special agents conducted numerous interviews regarding a situation in Talladega Super Speedway. After a thorough review of the facts and evidence surrounding this event, we have concluded that no federal crime was committed. What they found out was that the noose had not been placed in Bubba Wallace's garage in order to frighten him. Somebody, as a joke to another driver, had placed it there uh, maybe as long as a couple of years ago. It had been hanging in that garage. And though it was inappropriate, he was not the target. What I want to highlight is not just the information that came out, but I want to highlight the fact that in our nation, a nation right now that is overwhelmed by a lack of justice, there's two different storylines that came out of this episode. Upon the first report, when they found the noose and Bubba thought he was targeted, there was a whole chorus of voices who said, NASCAR has not changed. When the FBI came to the conclusive video and photography evidence that showed that that noose had been there for a long time, a whole new chorus of people has risen up, saying that the protesters are all on a witch hunt. If I can say something to you as your pastor, I want you to understand something. Neither of those voices were right. Instead of thoughtfully taking a look at things and having concern for a man who had put himself out there and for sure was going to be the victim of retaliation, without any compassion, we either label him or label the other side. And what we do is we form a group of people shouting, screaming, angry, but no Grace has been administered. No truth was actually received. No justice has been administered yet. We still are a nation filled with injustice, only now we are angrier and angrier about it with no resolution near. We add to that 
Aaliyah Dagester from USA Today says the science is screaming. America is turmoil, and more than 80% of U.S. adults report that the nation's future is a, has a significant, or the nation's future is a significant source of distress. According to a report on Thursday from the American Psychological Association, Americans are the unhappiest that they've been in 50 years. Some say that the pandemic can push suicide drug deaths as high as 150,000 in our United States. We are a nation that's in crisis. Coronavirus is unchecked. Politics are unhinged. Racial injustice is pervasive. Nationwide depression is on the rise. There is no easy answers. Now, I know we've asked you to gather as families, and I'm going to ask you as families to consider this heavy moment in our nation and also a heavy passage in Scripture. I believe that when we come to the book of Lamentations, we come across a biblical author, uh, Jeremiah, who sees what is going on in his nation and sees the near future for that same nation and is overwhelmed. In fact, the very beginning of this book starts with, uh, it's called the vocative voice in the original language. He screams out, how? And it's a question and an exclamation at the same time. How did we get here? He starts with how and it ends in tears. There's no easy answer in this book. But all the way through, just like a singer who sings the blues because of hardship in his life, Jeremiah begins to sing the blues and his soul be, is elevated to look to God for the answer. What are the conclusions that this author comes to, Jeremiah, as he begins to sing the blues? What are the conclusions he comes to that might minister to us? I want you to notice four things in this little book. Turn there with me. Lamentations chapter 1, I want you to notice the source of it. It says in 1 verse 8, Jerusalem has sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy, and all who honored her despised her. Verse 12 goes on and says, Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see. Is there any sorrow like my sorrow which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger? From on high he sent fire into my bones. He made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, fainting all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. Here the author rightfully says that all of this grief that's come upon Israel is by the Lord's hand. I want you to hear this first thought, and that is sometimes God's gift is grief. Grief is the thing that is prescribed at times to stop a downward descent. Uh, a short while ago, while I was battling cancer, I can remember going in and, and uh, my first 
meetings with the doctors. They told me what the prescription was going to be. I was shown into the chemo room and the people sitting there in loungers taking that medicine. Um, but it wasn't a comfort because I'd been told that this medicine is in fact poison. In fact, the route that they chose, I still have a scar on my chest here, multiple ones where they had to put in ports uh, into my chest. They actually routed that poison through my heart. The poison went into my body and it actually uh, attacked that cancer, the necessary ingredient in my life in order to arrest the development of cancer was a poison administered through my heart. In the same way, what God says is there's a cancer that was happening in Israel and the only way for me to be able to arrest its development was this poison of grief. I'm going to go right through your heart, he says, and get to that problem. Yes, it's going to make you sick, it's going to overwhelm you, but your healing depends on you taking this medicine. A.W. Tozer talking about sadness and tears in the life of a leader says this, The Bible was written in tears, and to tears it will yield its best treasure. God has nothing to say to the frivolous man. It was to Moses, a trembling man, that God spoke on the mountain, and that same man later saved the nation when he threw himself before God with the offer to have himself blotted out of God's book for Israel's sake. Daniel's long season of fasting and prayer brought Gabriel to heaven to tell him the secret of the centuries. When the beloved John wept much because no one could be found worthy to open the seven-sealed book, one of the elders comforted him with the joyous news that the lion of the tribe of Judah had prevailed. The psalmist often wrote in tears. The prophets could hardly conceal their heavy-heartedness. The apostle Paul, in his otherwise joyous epistle to the Philippians, broke into tears when he thought of the many who were enemies of the cross of Christ and whose end was destruction. Those Christian leaders who shook the world were one and all men of sorrows, whose witness to mankind welled out of heavy hearts. There is no power in tears per se, but tears and power ever lie close together in the church of the firstborn. Sometimes God's gift is grief. But secondly, I want you to notice in this book that our nature is to search for normal rather than for the heart of God. Lamentation starts with order. If you just do a cursory look in your own Bible, you're going to notice that this is lined out. First chapter and second chapter are 22 verses long. The third chapter is 66 verses long. And then chapters 4 and 5 are 22 verses long. That's because when you read this in Hebrew, each line that is being shouted out by this prophet goes with a letter of the alphabet. The author goes through basically the A to Z of destruction and is overwhelmed. Each of these five laments, he follows that acrostic model. 22 letters, 22 verses. The third chapter, he does 66, three lines for each letter. The Hebrews really believed that God had given them not only the scriptures, but gave them the exact alphabet that they were to use, and they looked at that as a holy prescription, and so they walked through those 22 lines. But something interesting happens in chapter 5. 
you don't find that exact same order. There are still 22 lines, but it does not follow an acrostic whatsoever. It doesn't start at Aleph and end at the end of the Hebrew alphabet. It just is somebody who started off with order and ends in an ugly cry. He is overwhelmed. He is discouraged. Still 22 lines, but he's now searching for order when his whole entire life has become disordered. We often quit when our world gets messed up. We begin to search for normal as if we could somehow go back. Listen to the voices around us in the United States today. What are they saying? They're saying if we could only get back to, or if we could only begin to experience what we once had, if only it were this way once again. There is no going back. There is no normal. There is only what is going to be next. And the author realizes that as he breaks into tears. When we look at what is next, we need to be concerned not with what is normal, but we need to begin searching for the heart of God. It is God's voice and God's desire and God's will that will set us free and bring us to the place of safety. One author writes, there was a, a little boy who was actually on a ride with his father, and while they were going along this trail, a branch had fallen across the trail, and the father thought that he would give the son a lesson, and he says, why don't you hop off your bike and remove that limb? And the little boy with great courage jumps down, grabs a hold of the limb, and makes an attempt to try and pull it out of the way. And with all of his strength, all he could do was pick up uh, the butt of that limb just a little bit. He could move it just inches. He exhausted himself trying to pick it up with his arms, trying to get down low and push with his legs, trying everything that he thought that he knew how to do it. And finally, almost in tears, he looks up at his dad and says, I can't do it. And his dad says to him, have you used all of the strength at your disposal? The little boy says, yes. And the father says, no, you haven't. You have not yet asked me. The little boy says, will you help me? And the father gets off of his bike, picks up that branch with ease and moves it off of the trail. And at once is teaching him not only about the strength that you can find in others, but the strength of a father when asked. The little boy hadn't used everything that was at his disposal. And I would say that for many of us, we have not used all the strength that's at our disposal. Prayer has come last only when we have exhausted ourselves in futile attempts to move the bulk and the weight and the heaviness that's in our world today. But there's a third thing I want you to notice in this book, and that is that in God's story, grace is at the center. There's five chapters, as we've noticed, so chapter 3 would be the center, and in chapter 3, there are 66 verses, so that segment in the middle, 31 through 33, is the literal center point of this book. It's a reminder. Earlier it says that the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Verse 31, for the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he causes grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. That word willingly there literally means from the heart. The affliction that we experience is not coming out of his heart. It's coming out of necessity. His heart is filled with grace. 
We're reminded in Romans 2.4 that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. There was an observation made in a little book on missions called Shaping of Things to Come by Michael Frost. And in there he talks about in his own area of Alabama the difference between herding cattle in Alabama and in Australia. He says in Alabama we spend all of our time building fences so that the cattle will stay in. We have confined areas, we know the boundaries of somebody else's property and we put up these fences hoping that the cattle will not go far. But in Australia, it's not the same. Here they have acres and acres, millions of acres that may be assigned for cattle. It would be impossible to fence them all in. So instead of fences, which would equal rules, they sink a well. When they plant a well in that area, the cattle stay close to that place where they are well watered so that they will stay refreshed. It is through refreshment that they draw those cattle in. His implication is great for the gospel. The answer that we need in our world today are not more fences, not more rules and regulations. We need grace, water that is planted, wells that are in the middle of a, an arid nation. People will be drawn to that which will water them and cause them to be refreshed. There's a final thing that I would have you see in this, and that's the final words of the book of Lamentations. It says, but you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. Unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. This is a shocking moment in this book. The book ends and it seems that the entire storyline just drops off of a cliff. I believe the author does this intentionally. He's asking us to consider something and the result will be, after thoughtful reflection, that we will see that God does his best work in the dark. At this moment, the scene changes. The lights on the stage go dim. It does, in fact, go dark. And the question hanging is, is God done? Is he going to leave us in this place? Remember, when we were talking about the Hebrew letters and alphabet, they believed that those 22 words or 22 letters were actually given to them as a prescription to best reflect the truth about the Messiah and the truth about God. But they also believed that their order of the scriptures was given to them by the Lord. And they only had 22 books where we have 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. They had Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles where we have all the different minor prophets listed out by book. They had the book of the 12. They had 22 books that they would look at. And they believed the order of those books was significant. It would reveal something about the Lord. Well, in the Hebrew ordering of their Hebrew scriptures, the very next book that comes after Lamentations is the book of Esther, a book where God's name is not brought up even once, but his fingerprints are on every single page. When it looked like everything was lost, God won the day, and the end of it was a feast of Purim, a feast that reminded them once again that it felt like it was chance that they survived, but it was actually the result of God. 
There's only one time in the New Testament that we see the Feast of Purim celebrated. It's Jesus in John chapter 5 walking to the pool of Bethesda. And there he finds a man 38 years who's been laying by the side of that pool. He also had sought religion and it did not help. He sought the help of friends. They couldn't do anything for him. He laid there sick and broken and hopeless until Jesus comes along. What seems like a chance encounter was actually the plan of God. He arrives just at the right time. What is our plan in the midst of this chaos? Our plan is to trust the living God and understand he does his greatest work in the dark. Three hours on the cross, it goes dark, and Christ wins the victory. It's dark in the tomb until he emerges victorious. It's dark now, and Christ is still on the throne. The question is, will we trust him? Will we put our faith in him? I have some questions for us to ask. Three questions for us to consider as families as we look at this first segment of praying in fractured lives. And that question is, what major trends in our nation are causing you concern? It's not going to be uh, bitterness now to be able to share those things, but be careful to share those with that tinge of hope. There are things that are concerning us and we need to give voice to those, but only if we answer the second question as well, and that is what possible good can come from this grief? Final question I'd have you address is how will you put all of your strength to the problem that we face? Like that little boy who did not feel that he had anything that he could do to lift the burden. He had not yet looked to the Father. So it is we need to, as families, as believers with one heart, look to the Father. He cares. He is not done working. He is not finished with our situation. We can trust him, and we're called to look to him. Let's do that. Father, we ask that you would help us as believers to consider the truth that is found in this book, a book that is for sure coming from a fractured life, from somebody who was overwhelmed. And yet, Father, they poured out their concerns to you. They poured out their weeping to you and that we see historically you not only answered those prayers, but you lifted them up and provided ultimately a Messiah salve the wounds. We pray, Father, that you would help us to look to you as well and to trust your timing, your perfect will, allow the grief in our nation to have its perfect result. But we pray, Father, that you would allow us as believers to rise up with grace-filled answers, wells in the middle of a desert that would draw people in rather than fence them in. Rules, regulations, and anger will not solve our concerns but grace will. Help us to trust you with the truth, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.